2020 marks the 50th birthday of Griffin Theatre Company's home, the Stables Theatre. I'm Angela Caterns. Join us as we celebrate the anniversary in this special series of podcasts where we'll hear about the theatre's history and talk to some of the country's most celebrated artists. Lillian Haller, Anna Volska and Ron Blair were there at the very beginning. Ron, how did you get involved? What was your role? Well, a role is a grand, a grand word. For a, uh, <laughs> what happened was um, John went away with Anna to England to work in the Royal Shakespeare Company. John uh, Bell. John Bell did. Who I think you'd gone to university I with. did, indeed, and we mm. kept in touch. He, occasionally he, he would write a letter and uh, describing life at the Royal Shakespeare Company. He then one day said, look, I, I'd really love to come home and work in the Australian theatre. And I remember I'd see Ken Haller fairly regularly. He was by this stage, certainly married to Lillian, who's next to me here. I'd mentioned that, this to Ken about John wanting to come back. He said, do you have the letter? And I said, yeah, here it is. I gave it to him. It's an aerogram, I think, one of those old-fashioned aerograms. And uh, it was the last I saw of the letter, Lillian. You, you won't be surprised to know. But when John came back, he, he had a, a job at NIDA. He was uh, in charge of acting at NIDA. While he was there, he... Um, was working with Michael Boddy, who was also a teacher at NIDA. And at this stage, Robert Quentin, as a professor, uh, had rented a little revival church hall, which was then called the Jane Street Theatre, as part of the old tote. And um, what happened was uh, they're looking for things to put on, and John spoke to Michael Boddy about it. Michael Boddy knew Bob Ellis very well, and they worked up this exuberant concert about uh, an Australian politician called King O'Malley. Uh, and it was a knockabout piece of, of no great importance, but certainly full of joy and uh, Australianness. And this was, to everyone's incredible surprise, a huge hit. When I say huge, I mean to say this small revival hall was packed for the very short season because everyone was hungering for something fresh and Australian. We were a bit resentful that we couldn't find something Australian. I mean, the art world had, uh, had gone ahead with you know Australian painting without having to constantly look at Constable or Turner. That didn't seem to be a problem with the art world. Why, why was it a problem with us? So, cut a long story short, I'd written uh, review scripts at uh, university. Ken said, I've taken a lease on this place and John and Ken and Richard Ware I met for the first time, although he was at university as well uh, in the early 60s, but he'd gone to England to get his training, as did John. And um, Ken said, would you, would you like to get involved in this project? We're cleaning the stables, number 10 Nimrod Street, which I remember being full of uh, rubbish, uh, including a, a run-down old car. With, uh, with its wheels off and one of those soft top cars from the 30s, you know. As I was working with John cleaning the walls one Saturday, a very dusty business it was, I said, what plays are you going to put on? And he said, well, I don't have any. And I thought, aha. <laughs> 
Of course, since Michael Boddy was involved in The Legend of King O'Malley, uh, which had been a success, John asked him to get involved in the opening play, which was about the English air ace Bigglesworth. Again, it was a sort of concert knockabout thing. It's never been revived and it, it couldn't bear to be revived, really. But John said, would you like to do some scenes? And I said, I'd love to. So he gave me, a, with Michael Boyd, they gave me a bit of a sketch of what the play was about. It was really about Biggles, Ginger and Bert, Algae. Algae. Algae and Matron. And Matron, all coming out to Australia on a kind of uh, RSL tour. And so... Uh, <laughs> They're down on their luck. So I wrote some scenes and I gave them to Michael Boddy, but also I gave the same scenes to John. John said to Michael Boddy, well, what do you think? And he said, oh, no, I don't think, I don't think we can use those. And John said, oh, well, I, I like them, actually. See if you can fit them in. So Michael Boddy did fit them in and I met regularly uh, until the show took off. So more on Biggles in a short while. Lillian, so your late husband, Ken, really came up with the idea for this theatre. When was that and why was that? I think he'd experienced theatres in Europe. Well, Were Australian theatres lacking at that time? All of these people had known each other at, at university where they'd done an enormous amount of theatre. I met Ken when he crushed my 21st birthday party and that was in 1963 when he'd just come back from England but at the time in 1970 when when Nimrod was started we'd been quite involved with the uh, Central Street Gallery and lots of art things and there was an artist called Jim Crawford and um, he apparently told Ken about this place which was full of rubbish, but it was available for lease for $17 a week. And Ken had already decided that what he needed to find was something which had to be within two miles of the GPO. So he took out a pin and welded around, and this place seemed to be very good. But the idea for an Australian theatre, I think, was a joint idea of um, John and Ken and and Richard by then. Mm -hmm. And Anna, do you remember Ken asking for your husband John Bell's help with this new theatre? What I remember was Ken ringing up and John teaching at NIDA, so he wasn't at home. Ken saying that he'd found a beautiful, intelligent woman that he had married. And because uh, we weren't up to speed with all this and also a space in King's Cross that he wanted to do something with and would John be interested and I said well as soon as he gets back he'll ring you that was the first connection fantastic <laughs> to give you an idea of how small Sydney was at that stage everybody knew everything. everyone knew everyone and yeah. Tony McGillick who was involved in the Central Street Gallery and was the prime mover with his uh, half-brother John White and various other painters including Whiteley I worked with, in advertising, an agency called Brown and Bruce, and the artistic director of Brown and Bruce was Leo Schofield. So it gives you an And McGillick used to sort of jeer at us for talking about an Australian theatre, and he said, we've got on and done it. 
And I remember that really used to. So here you are basically building a whole new theatre from the ground up, from a, a, a building full yes, of rubbish at $17 a week. But it has to be said that in the meantime, Richard Werrett had brought with him from East 15 Joan Littlewood's Theatre in London two young men. One was Chris Hayward and the other one was Larry Eastwood who, in the end, he basically built the first theatre in the stage. But he was certainly material in the cleaning of it up as well, mm-hmm. Larry Eastwood. Mm-hmm. And the seats are still there that he built, the same seats. Is that true? Oh. Tell me a little bit about the process of building the thing. Everybody's volunteering their time. I understand Lillian's making beautiful sandwiches. <laughs> yes, but I was, I was very busy working, bringing in the few dollars that we lived on whilst Ken, who was at this time... Uh, already a very important civil libertarian was also trying to do the odd job but he kept doing pro bono work Mm -hmm. for the council of civil liberties which helps helps set up and so uh, he was away a lot of the time so these guys got on with doing it and he supplied lots of know-how and contacts yes and where did the materials come from, Well, for uh, there were no materials to begin with except some cement because I remember turning up, Ken said, make sure you wear good solid footwear and bring some garden gloves and something to put on your head. So I did and I was directed to get, climb up a ladder and scrape all the dust and all the f- old... It must have been calcimine. Calcimine, all yes. the old calcimine yes, off the bricks. Mm. All the old calcimine off the bricks and that's why all that dust is in the air. And then when we'd done that, to then smear cement on I, the bricks. I, was, I have a, a distinct memory of, of a ladder up against a wall and me, heavily pregnant with Sasha, bag-washing the... Yeah, the, the bricks. Cement. <laughs> Smearing the cement on in a kind of uh, some hessian in your hand. Mm. But I do remember that the lime it's, would get it, under, it, your, it uh, under your glove. Drip down. And it would eat into your wrists. <laughs> uh, after a few weekends of this, one had significant Christ-like holes in the wrist. Smearing this lime and cement on the walls to bind the whole, all the brickwork together. Mm-hmm. And there were people around I'd never seen before. People yeah, were variously friends of yeah, friends of friends. Anthony's that was Anthony's that's right, girlfriend, that's right, that's right. Jackie Garland, and and there was a guy there who uh, Ken had done some pro bono work in court, publican. Yes, there was a pub with he'd done a pro bono case for a man who lived on the border of New South Wales and Victoria and couldn't get any beer supplies in those days. The pub with no beer, and uh, he donated or came and worked on the place yeah. too. And there were uh, lots of other Well, Angela, Angela Weiss, who became uh, Judge Carpin. So they provided the first piano that we ever had. Did they? Did they? Yeah. Keith Watman, who Keith, was a... Keith Watman was a demolisher. demolisher. So I think he yeah. was brought in to cart away all the... All the rubbish. Rubbish. That's right. And yeah. in the end, he presented... Uh, Ken with a $3,000 cheque to much publicity mm-hmm. as well for mm-hmm. that <laughs> So do you remember the time? Was it was it a happy time? Was it oh. wonderful, fun, everyone getting yes. together and working towards this common goal? 
It was absolutely wonderful. I it was extraordinary. But one of the, I mean, you were talking about you earning the money, Lily, because what was remarkable was it was the first company that actually paid actors during oh, rehearsal. Well, the, Ken's ambition in the theatre was three threefold. He wanted Sunday drinks. He wanted to be open on Sundays, neither of which you could do on Sunday trading in those days. And he wanted actors to be paid rehearsal money and to be paid equity... Minimum. Well, I don't know whether it was equity minimum, but perhaps it was equity minimum. But anyway, paid rehearsal pay. It was unknown in Sydney for anyone to get... any actor to get rehearsal money in those days. Well, and so where did the money come from then? It came from uh, loans from Ken and me carrying it for, for quite a while until they were able to repay us out of uh, grants and so on. Mm-hmm. And when we opened the theatre, I'd been a lawyer, so I organised all the things like the Mimo and Articles Association and, and um, Ron was an original member. There were a 100 original members and it had to be a company limited by guarantee which couldn't pay its profits out to the so-called shareholders. Mm. So there were various tasks. I was member number five. Sorry? I was member number five. Number five, were you? Mm. (laughs) And so, well, let's talk a little about Biggles, which was the first ever production. Can you tell me a bit about the play? As I said, it was a knockabout piece of nothing, a piece of fun with a few songs, uh, and we just stole songs out of that were in copyright. I think Izzy and Ozzy, Izzy, Lizzie, which... (laughs) Brass hat. We came an, an ad. You came out and sang. Slouch hat. Uh, uh, just an old slouch, brown slouch hat. Just a brown and slouch hat with the side turned up, right. and it means the world to me. That's it. Yes. That, uh, that was, of course, uh, from Australian musical. That song. I'm trying to think of the name of the guy. Wallace. Anyway, uh, but there was the song uh, "Easy and Easy, Easy Lizzie," which Dick Bentley sang with. Barry Humphreys. More importantly, Anna danced it with yeah. Jane Harders. That's right, we did. And I made the costumes. Yes. yes. And I remember Michael and Body, who was in the show, had a neck size of 28 <coughs> inches. Can you imagine <laughs> making his collar? Some neck. I can't imagine you remembering that. I understand the Christmas Eve production was very special. Do you recall that? I remember that we had about ten members in the audience, ten people. Yes. So it was so not said, a busy day. And it was, you, you had, under equity, you had to have 12 or something or the, or the actors could refuse to go on. I and think there was didn't something we called Tim Reed. Tim Reed? Not Tim Reed. There was somebody sitting there who was the scion of a very wealthy family and he said he'd pay for the house and um, I don't remember that but I do remember saying would you like us to do the show or should we just yes. stand around the piano and sing and the songs have a few drinks. and that's what they opted for <laughs> have a few drinks and sing the songs yes. which was nice yes, yeah indeed and so you're being paid for your performances by this stage we were being paid yes. was that unusual at the time it was extraordinary yeah, I mean, paid during rehearsal. Mm-hmm. As I said, Ken had three. It had to be open on Sundays, and we had to have a liquor license. Did you ever get a liquor license? I don't of course remember. We got there. Oh. The only way to get a drink on Sunday in those days was to, to drive down to the Newport Arms and be a bona fide traveller, or go out to the airport. Yeah, 
The number of times I went to the Newport Arms for a drink is ludicrous. <laughs> but, but my recollection is that there weren't any movies on Sundays either. Oh, no, I mean, no, there no, was no, 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 no activity no, no, on no, Sundays. The Art Gallery of New South Wales was open on Sundays. Was it? <laughs> so some of you had young children at this stage. Were they part of the theatre too? They were. They were. And when we were very busy or in rehearsal, Chris Haywood would go and collect them from school, which was um, lovely of him. And when was Sasha born? Is Sasha much Sasha younger? wasn't born until uh, February of the, the next year, until 71. But thereafter, um, she used to be in the crib in a basket, a laundry basket, which was her crib, um, underneath the box office table where I was sitting. <laughs> underneath the box office table. Uh-huh. Yeah. And didn't the ladies next door sometimes look after and her? Flynn. Miss well, Flynn. Miss Flynn and Miss Cree. You said they did for you, but they didn't do it for me that I remember. But I tell you what, because initially everyone was against the theatre. They oh, yes. noisy and would bring hoi polloi into the cross. <laughs> and then Ken would get off with Jackie Weaver too. Oh, yes, they were very worried about that. Were they worried? Yes. Why? Yeah. And, and, well, because, oh, I don't know, this is a story he told me, so. <laughs> but I wondered about the neighbours. So did they welcome the theatre into their neighbourhood? No, no not, not initially. Not initially. But once, the, once they realised that it wasn't going to be making a ter- terribly big noise and we weren't going to be... Polluting the neighbourhood. <laughs> ...bringing any brothels or anything in the, into the area. The, the, there was a brothel across the road. Road, sorry, the road, and when people were, I don't know, drunk or whatever, they would throw bottles on the roof. That's right. That's right. Look, when we're doing President Wilson in Paris, a play I wrote later for the theatre, a bloke came home sick at one Friday night, and he was so furious because he he couldn't park his car. All the parking spaces were taken <clears throat> anyway, so he came raging in the theatre with his wife trying to prevent him. He, he was screaming and shouting, and Anna was upstairs with uh, Max Cullen in the play, performing. What happened was, Anna said, because the guy was on the stairs shouting, look, let's just stop now for a moment, and we'll settle this, she said to the audience and to the actors. So everyone went into freeze frame, and then Max Cullen went down the stairs and said, half halfway down the stairs where the guy had come up, ah, oh, look, uh, I'm Max Cullen, you might have seen me in... No, number 96 or whatever the television yeah. series was at the time and the bloke said oh, I've seen you and you're a fucking dreadful actor <laughs> <laughs> Max retreated sheepishly back and the play continued and the wife dragged the man away come on Bill because uh, uh, someone said call the police I think it was me actually call, <laughs> call the police call the police just to, to get him going and he said call the fucking cops what do I care and his wife dragged him away then Anna said shall we resume oh. Beautiful. I also remember when it rained, we had to stop the show. Yeah. It was so loud. Really? And, oh, and the rain room. on the and, roof. And yeah. there was a toilet in the middle of the upstairs, right at, at the top of the stairs. It, it had to fit in. There was no lighting box or anything. I think the lighting person was in, in there occasionally. Oh, I know what Keith Watman had given us. He'd, he'd given us the um, lights from the majestic... Her Majesty's Theatre, which he'd helped demolish. So we had some a few lights. But, Lily, we didn't but have a toilet for some time. We didn't. And in, But that's right, because we couldn't use the toilet because it was in use for, for the production. <laughs> but I just do the Max Cullen story. Um, I didn't get to very many rehearsals because I was at the box office sitting down there with Sashi in the basket. 
And whenever I did see anything, it was absolutely magical and miraculous. But I got up there one day and all of a sudden, Max Cullen climbed through a window and popped onto the stage. And how did he do this? I said, how did he? Don't tell me they put a ladder up there. And and they did. And, and they, they had. It was part of the play. Yes. A ladder on the outside. Yeah, on a ladder, ladder on the outside in the laneway. <laughs> it, was a, it was a play that I'd written and I knew that window was there and I thought, let's use it as an entrance. It was the only window in the theatre. Yes. Well, onto the stage. Onto the stage. It's been bricked in now, but we used it. And there was also a window in the dressing room. And I know when Jackie Weaver des- desperately wanted to have a wee, she was held back, backwards, out the window. And some guy downstairs looked up and thought it was raining. Ron, oh, Ron, Ron you're making that he, up. He makes a lot of stuff. He makes that up. <laughs> Absolutely true. I have one of those too, in that John Prummel, who was in your play, President Wilson in Paris, was desperate for we and every night he used to wee into a paper cup and throw the whole paper cup out the window and there were people downstairs. Right. I wondered if you could describe the back the backstage facilities apart from the toilet. Uh, facilities, <laughs> facilities. That's a big. There weren't any. <laughs> the backstage cupboard. It was very small and it is very still small, small still, but it um, makes for intimacy and um, connection between all the actors. So it's. And it's not a long way to the stage. It's not a long way to the <laughs> stage. But even now, they can't flush if they use the loo right. because it's, you know, it's too noisy. And so, uh, and so then I understand the council closed the theatre down for a while because of the fire risk after... There was only ones. one staircase. There was only one. still there. It's the staircase the actors used to go out down to the ground floor. Mm-hmm. But for, the, for an audience, uh, even of 90 or to 100 people, if there was any fire... Forget it. Well, really, what happened in fact was that proper plans were put into the council, um, which which hadn't been done for the previous thing, and eventually, certain conditions were permitted, and and uh, we were allowed to open. Uh, Ken's father um, had a lot of connections with, with the city council, and so that helped a lot. And so after Beagles, the theatre closed, Nimrod moved to a new home and Bob Ellison and Brooksbank bought the site oh. and ran it for six years. You're and jumping ahead a bit yeah. because then the theatre was reopened and ah. there were quite a lot of productions mm-hmm. uh, before, um, before, yeah. it moved. before before we moved. Before, yeah. Until, oh, okay. until the middle of 1974 in fact. Mm-hmm. And we took Productions down to Melbourne to the pram factory. So it was closed after Biggles. Then you got the permission and reopened, and obviously another. And it went on for a whole wonderful period of production. Quite a few happened. years, in yes. Fact. And then Bob and and bought the site and ran it for six well, years. What, and then it was secured by the SPW Foundation. And that's what I wanted to ask you about, about Lillian. If you could tell us a little about who was behind that foundation. My recollection was that Catherine Brisbane and and I and a woman called Pamela Payne were all sitting on a um, a professional women's theatre and arts people organisation somehow had a connection with the first director of Griffin, who was Peter Kingston. And uh, I think I got to sit on the board of Griffin at that time. And when Dr Seaborn... Uh, arrived, I suggested to him that theatre companies tend to come and go, but the building is unique and it would be a good idea to put the money into the theatre and then 
find a way of of supporting the company with a peppercorn rent and blah 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 all that sort of stuff so he set up a foundation called the seaborn walford and broughton organization who were friends of his oh king's boys weren't they they went to the king's Leslie school walford was a, a f- famous designer of the time interior designer and so on and so he got his legal advisors to assist him in forming such a foundation mine was the idea but i didn't do it uh, do it physically for him and it's owned by that foundation to this day yes yes as i say we only had a lease we only ever had a lease nimrod Mm. What happened is that Bob Ellis came in, all those other things happened, and I think with Bob and Bob and Anne wanted to buy it but couldn't afford to, and in the end, Seaborn got it for two hundred. They got it for two hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars, as I recall. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, there had been changes made to the theatre. Uh, there was a oh, central yes. post in the theatre, which was always, when John was doing productions and Ken too, uh, imaginatively worked around the post, made it part of the play. But it was always a sightline problem. So when the theatre was redesigned uh, later on, that post was taken out. And it was also a terrible sweat box. In summer, the ceiling was very low and uh, Lillian used to cram uh, uh, people in, just famous cramming people in, uh, because every every seat Come was on, another five, ten, fifteen bucks. dollars the tickets were in those. Well, she used to but move. But Lillian had a stick. You had a stick to push them along. You don't have a you stick. Did. I did. I've, I've still got the, the, the marks on my back. But uh, anyway, she used the, to cram them in, cram yeah, them in. But that was very important, so I did go up every night to do that. Pushing job, pushing job, um, but I don't remember having a stick. Anyway, there were two sets of alterations. The first set of alterations were done immediately when we were allowed to go back in there. We had to have a proper staircase and lots of toilets. Toilets done. Six toilets, would you believe? Six toilets. It's the downstairs, which had been a kind of general space for drinks and stuff, all turned into a kind of giant public lavatory <laughs> with lots of public. Cub- <laughs> well, open to the public, lots yeah. of cubicles. Yes, so there were six toilets. Was the air conditioning put in that time? No, no, no later. The air conditioning was put in, I think, by an alteration that was done by the Seaborne Walford so, Foundation uh-huh. uh, much later, quite it's, a bit later. It's John was determined to get air conditioning Belvoir, the, the new Nimrod in Surrey Hills, he was determined to make sure that there'd be air conditioning because of the terrible sweating yeah, that was, went on in summer. Well, but, you know, it was part of the magic of the place too, <laughs> of course, originally. And people did love it and they did come and they packed out. And by the time that, that Nimrod left there, uh, we were packed houses. And I was a bit cross with John and Ken because they, and Richard, John and Richard especially, because they they decided they wanted to do bigger productions and for that we needed a, a bigger theatre. And, <laughs> and so your children, uh, you know, the ones who as babies slept in the laundry basket under the ticket desk and slept under the seats in the theatre and now grown up, do they have a relationship with the theatre too? I'm sure they do. I mean, as with we the, speak... With this particular place? Yes, as we oh, speak yeah. at uh, the Griffin is The Splinter, production of The Splinter, written by Hilary Bell, starring Lucy Bell. So um, 
it's full of ghosts for them too. Mm. Has yeah. Sasha ever worked at the? Uh, oh yes, she worked. She worked with the Griffin quite a few times. Is that right? Yes. So they have fond memories of the place now, or absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And so, what, and I, that, this is a question for all three of you to answer, if you wouldn't mind. What, is, what do you think is the importance of this venue, and and Griffin Theatre Company to Sydney and Australia? Oh, it's so huge. I mean, one of the huge things in performance is uh, the cringe, combating the cringe, which means um, thinking that anything that comes from overseas is better or more interesting or more special. And to have a venue that really concentrates on Australian writers, I mean, it's crucial. I remember in 1975, at the Playwrights Conference, George Ogilvy was asked why he was running the Adelaide the estate company at that time, why he didn't do more Australian plays, and he said because the audiences won't come. And he's proved wrong again and again by Griffin. So Lillian, can I get your I think that really the the Australian voice must be allowed to... To speak. To speak. Mm. And so what happened was that basically actors stopped speaking... um, like I do, I suppose. I was educated before all of this, but they all spoke to whatever the part was that they were written, but in their own voices. Are you saying enough received pronunciation? We didn't have to do English accents. That's right. We didn't have to do English acting with the with the pommy voices. Mm. And Ron, what, what, what do you think is the importance of, well, of this venue now and, and Griffin... Theatre Company to Sydney and Australia? Well, probably Melbourne wouldn't say that at all. You know, they have La Mama down there. That was very important for Melbourne. Um, But the interesting thing about that little theatre in King's Cross or Darlinghurst, the relationship between the actors and the audience was a sort of cockpit. And it was incredibly intense. And it was so exciting that that was reproduced when the theatre moved to Surrey Hills. And then again... At the, and you'll find at it represented in parts of Australia. I remember Jake Newby as the stage manager at uh, Surrey in Surrey Hills. When he went to Perth, the theatre called The Hole in the Wall in Subiaco, the relationship between the audience and the stage was much the same. And, so, and Twelfth Night in Brisbane And too. Twelfth Night in Brisbane. Yeah, cool. And the wharf, of course, down at the original wharf at Richard Wirt. But presided over, also took its inspiration from the old Nimrod Theatre. I think that that relationship is hugely important, to be able to see the audience on the other side and to see their reactions to things, and it was repeated. And Ken and I had done a big tour of uh, theatres in England, including the Octagon Octagon and various other theatres in the round and, and seen possible images of the sort of thing that it might be so that's also but really the I think it is the um, the voice of Australian writing I mean at various times it's been the actor's voice the the theatre's voice and the playwright's voice I think now the Seaborn uh, Warford Foundation is about the the playwright's voice mm. There's an actor called Don Crosby who for lived here most of his life, but he was, uh, and earlier, went to England for a bit. And, of course, he felt he could only be an actor if he had the received pronunciation. The very time I thought, this guy has got real talent, was when I saw him play an Australian in John's production 
of David Williamson's The Removalists at this theatre. And he was playing a semi-corrupt Aussie cop in the full blast of the Australian accent. And it was like releasing to see Don do this instead of having to always be polite or be another voice, as he had to be in radio. And it was quite remarkable. And my eyes were just opened to the possibility of of Australian actors. Well, this is one more thing, too, that I remembered. It also is distance of the audience from the place of performance. I can't see theatre when I'm more than ten. <laughs> None of us can, darling, now. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Anna Volska, Lillian Haller, Ron Blair, thank you so much for joining us. It's lovely. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Griffin's special podcast series where we're celebrating 50 years of the stables. For more anniversary activities, head to Griffin's website, griffintheatre.com.au. Thank you.